My name is Colby Garman. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. We're going to take some time to study God's Word this morning. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. In a moment, I'm going to read verses 19 down through verse 33 as we continue in our series, Greatest Hits, uh, looking at some of the most famous passages in the Bible and what they really teach us when we look at them in context. So we're going to turn to Lamentations chapter 3. That's kind of in the middle of your Bible. It's not a book most of you probably have ever heard a sermon from, but it's in the middle of your Bible right after Isaiah and Jeremiah Lamentations chapter 3. As you're turning there, I just want to say thank you to our uh, team of servants that went down to Norfolk this weekend. Friday night, we went to join our church planning team down there, uh, Carrie Julian and Jonathan Rivera, to put on a military parents' night out for, uh, for those who live there in Norfolk. And uh, they had a great night, and Carrie just was so thankful for those who made the trip and were willing to give up a portion of their weekend to serve those military military families. Uh, we hope that church will be able to launch this fall, but, but what a great way for them to get started in serving their community, and so thank you to those who were a part of that mission team, and uh, you know, some people drove down Friday, came back Friday night, others cut the end of their vacation short to swing by and be a part of uh, that event, and so I'm glad to be a part of a church that's, that's on mission. Almost every week there's something going on where we're having the opportunity to serve our community, so thank you for those who were a part of that. Let's look now at Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. You're going to hear really familiar verses when we get to verses 22 and 23, but we're going to read all the way to verse 33. Jeremiah the prophet writes, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. And is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is a good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to give attention to it and God, we ask that your spirit would empower us to not only understand it, but Lord, to have open hearts to receive what it would teach us about who you are today and what you've offered us so that you can be glorified and honored in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when, when our third daughter was uh, eight days old, she had open heart surgery. 
The day before the surgery, uh, as sort of a requirement, one of us as parents had to, to meet with the doctors to hear the details about what would actually take place and the many risks that are associated with it. I don't know, many of you probably at this point in life may have sat through one of these conversations where you sit and you hear all the possible things that could go wrong. You know, they, they try to give you some sense of assurance, like the percentages are great and you don't need to expect that this would happen, but, but we have to tell you these things. We need to, we need to make them clear so you understand it, it was, you know, for that day and two other surgeries, it was a detailed accounting of the possibilities of what could happen. And it was uncomfortable, to be honest. Hearing that sort of description with detail, interestingly, is, though, is one of the many reasons I find such gratitude in my heart for her healthy 13 years of life. Well, the book of Lamentations is an interesting book because it functions in a very similar, similar manner in the 66 books of Scripture. It's a deca- detailed accounting of the experience of Israel under God's justice and judgment. A difficult and detailed accounting of what it was actually like and what it felt like to experience the justice of God against Israel's ongoing and generational sin. If you were to read the chapters of Lamentation, you would probably be struck by how visceral the descriptions are of what it's like and what it was like for them to experience the judgment and justice of God even for a small space in time like they did. And it functions in a similar manner. It's a a detailed accounting of this justice and judgment on Israel as they were disciplined by God and exiled into Babylon. And it's recorded in some manner to help us appreciate in some detail what God's judgment and justice is like and to learn to appreciate His divine mercy. It's really a backdrop for some of the most powerful statements of God's mercy in all of the Bible. In fact, we sang the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, today because it's inspired by the very famous words that we read in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 here. About the unending steadfast love of God that is faithful like the rising of the sun. It is new every morning. It's an inexhaustible well. But that's given to us in the backdrop of clear language about the justice our sin deserves, the judgment of God on that sin. And if we understand it well, Lamentations points us most pointedly to the mercy of God, even in the middle of the very difficult description. And this passage is a central reason why we can say that the book of Lamentations is more about the mercy that goes beyond the justice than it is just about God's judgment. And that kind of brings me to the main idea of the sermon that I think we'll see as we look at this section that we read out loud and as we tie it into the rest of the book. But the main idea is this, that we discover that God's mercy works in and beyond his judgment and justice. Our hope isn't just that God overlooks our sin or God ignores all of the evil in the world, but that we would find that even in God's justice, there is a mercy at work that extends beyond His judgment. 
That there is hope for those who seek Him, who come to Him with humility and are willing to own their sin and own their failure, own their brokenness. Acknowledge that they deserve God's justice and deserve God's judgment and seek God for mercy. That His mercy is actually more super abundant than His love of justice and judgment. And so the main idea of the book of Lamentations, and particularly this section, is that God's mercy works in and beyond His judgment and injustice. And we see the abundance of God's mercy that triumphs over judgment in several ways in this passage that I want to point out to us this morning. I'm going to be a little bit shorter in our time studying God's Word today because we're going to celebrate baptisms. We're going to hear some testimony. So let's just look at three ways in which we see the abundance of God's mercy that works in and beyond His judgment and justice. The first way we see that, first, we see the abundance of God's mercy by taking a serious look. That is justice and judgment. One of the ways that we can come to really appreciate the mercy of God is to actually sit and take a detailed accounting of what his judgment and justice would be like if it were poured out. We see this in the text. Maybe you didn't notice, but we picked up in the middle of a chapter and we begin this passage in verse 19. We're brought Uh, into the middle of Jeremiah representing the people of Israel as they've come under a period of judgment and justice against their outright sin and wickedness. Verse 19, uh, as we read it, he, he begins by saying, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Now, we don't really talk about wormwood and gall these days. We may not be very in touch. I had to look up what wormwood was. I immediately knew it wasn't good, right? You read that and you go, this isn't good. Like whatever it is. Uh, but wormwood is actually like a bitter root that, they, that absinthe is made from. And it used to be that people would mix it up and put it into a drink. And they thought that somehow it might help them deal with various maladies and ailments they had. I mean, I don't know why they would do that. Nobody likes to drink anything bad. Um, and not knowing whether it would work. That, but this is, this, is, this is something that was regularly prescribed or given. And it was bitter. It was a bitter drink. And in a sense, he's talking about the judgment and justice of God as a bitter pill to swallow. Even when it's not permanent or long-term, when it's just corrective. When God would bring correction or trials or afflictions into life. He's saying, you know, this this is an experience that is awful. Living in a world that is broken and under the destruction of sin, the ways that we've participated in it, in many ways we experience seasons of our life like wormwood don't we there are there are experiences we have maybe you've had in life maybe they're ongoing right now that are a bitter pill a bitter drink like wormwood and he's he's not forgetting this experience he he actually is recounting in these words what it was like for Israel to be under God's justice. Uh, verse 19 just kind of wraps us into everything he said in verse 1 through 18. Uh, and, and so it's, it's kind of shocking. I want to just walk us through it. So, so here's what's happening. Israel has experienced an exile, a conquering by the Babylonian Empire. And it's come not just by accident because they've been overpowered politically, but it's come actually at the hand of God. God said long before it came, he said, I'm, this is going to happen. And he began to warn them to turn away lest they would come under his judgment and justice from the people of Babylon. And there was this long, long period of time where he extended mercy to them, invited them to repent of their sin. 
but they did not. This judgment did not come quickly. In fact, God warned them, offered mercy again and again. But they refused to take serious the warnings, and they continued its practices. If you were to read the prophets in the Old Testament, it makes you blush what was going on. They continued in idolatry and false idol worship, child sacrifice to these idols. Yeah, that's the seriousness we're talking about. All sorts of sexual immorality, a general rejection of God's law, and you just see this sort of this, this deep entrenched pattern of sin and rejection of God in the people of Israel. No matter how much he had blessed them, how he'd showed up in their life, had been long-suffering and faithful, you know, there was this period of time where they were just unwilling to submit themselves to God's instruction. And now as a result of that, God has sent Babylon against them and allowed them to be conquered in their suffering deep, deep painful consequences. This is what he's talking about, remembering his afflictions. He's not just talking about some personal you know, level of basic trials we may experience in life, which are hard enough. He's talking about the justice of God on their sin. What is it like? How does he describe it? Well, he describes it in these verses in some really powerful pictures. He says it's like being driven into darkness without any light. He says, you know, when you come under God's justice, there's nowhere to escape from the darkness of the moment. It's like being walled in with no way of escape. I think I probably picked it up from cartoons, but like one of my worst nightmares growing up was that nightmare where the walls are closing in around you. Anybody else ever have that? I don't know what that says about my anxiety, but... Um, you know, I had that nightmare several times growing up that I don't remember many of my dreams, but I remember those ones where the walls were clo closing in, and I mostly probably picked it up from Scooby-Doo. I just want to be honest, because Scooby-Doo always had scenes where somehow the walls moved, and I had never knew, now that I think about it, how did they make the walls move? I mean, we've had trouble figuring that out even now. But, but, the, but that sensation that everything's closing in around you, you're finally going to pay for what you've done moment of safety, getting away with things, of not attending to the problems, it's coming to an end. He says, this is what it's like to be under God's judgment. It's like having a target on you and the arrows of the bow bearing down on you. And the person with the bow being so good that they can get your kidney if they want. Like, I'm serious, you, you read it, you're going to see that imagery. This is the description. He's talking about what is it like to be under God's judgment. It's like being a laughing stock and a fool to everyone who looks on you. I mean, do you just feel how evocative this imagery is? It's like being thirsty and being given something awful, like a bitter herb to drink. It's like chewing on gravel. I'm bad enough if I get an eggshell in my eggs, you know. But this is like a mouthful of gravel, right? And, 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 you know, you just imagine the pain of not thinking you're going to chew on gravel and finding gravel inside your food and what it might do to your teeth. Being totally empty of peace, he says, and having no sense of hope. Because the greatest power in the universe is bearing down on you because you've sinned. You've rejected him. You've, you, you've played directly against every good thing he's been trying to accomplish. And you've gone your own way and been convinced that you know it all. And, and in that way, you've dishonored him. And, you, and now, your time of justice has come. 
It's a, these are powerful images. And they're all found there in verses 1 through 18 when he's saying, I remember what that was like. Now, Jeremiah records these words both to lament, sort of just name it, to be serious about it, to own it, to lament and remember the experience of Israel under God's judgment during that space and time so that they would rather repent and receive his mercy as a warning about what God's justice and judgment towards sin is really like. That, that they would allow this temporary time of judgment to bring them into a permanent repentance and faith in the Lord's promise of his steadfast love. That they wouldn't continue in their sin. And so he records this lest we forget what it's really like and you know one of the things I think it's really easy to do in our happy joyful encouraging evangelical culture or Baptist culture or church culture or American Christian culture however you want to fill in the blanks is we come to church for encouragement we think about spiritual things only in terms of the add-on of the positive but we never really take the time collectively or personally in our spirituality to get really sober about what life can be like and we don't even know that we're in our afflictions under the direct judgment of God. And yet we, we still know what seasons of brokenness and pain and sin and the world not being set right yet can really feel like. And some of you are living through them right now. Some of them, some of you know that there are consequences that have come to bear in your life that it's hard for you to even admit they're connected to past mistakes you've made, failures, your own personal weaknesses. It's true of me. It's true of all of us. We don't like to level very much because even right now, just like Israel's judgment during this time was temporary and an encouragement for a permanent repentance, we, part of the way God has made the world at present is that we experiences, gl experience glimpses of what it might like if be, be like if he just took his hand off of blessing us. If he stopped upholding us and bringing his provision, all that he's created for joy and sustenance off our life for just a moment, and, and we feel just what that might be like. And right now, we live in a time where we temporarily at times feel the judgment and justice of God and get these little glimpses of what it might be like to be in totally abandoned to God's judgment and justice. And he records these words so that we won't forget because when we don't, when we don't sit and name it, when we don't lament it, when we don't really own it, it's really hard to appreciate that God offers mercy. And he extends this warning to us. The Bible does. It warns of a future judgment at the end of life or the end of time spoken of by Jesus and all of the apostles. It's never described as something undeserved or out of proportion to our sin uh, that's, and the sin that's been committed in the world. It's instead spoken of as intended to warn us that we should not take lightly what it would be really like to be justly under God's wrath against wickedness. It's intended to make us stop and consider what it would be like to receive what we deserve for our own sin. 
We should hear these words and gain an appreciation of what God offers to us then in His mercy, lest we come swiftly under the fullness of His judgment and discover what He is really capable of in His justice. That's why these words are recorded. So let's make this personal. For the people of Jeremiah's day, this is a temporary judgment intended to warn and instruct them and bring them into really experiencing God's faithfulness and salvation. It's a disciplinary and corrective judgment. So he says they should respond in a particular way, verses 27 through 30. We're not going to dig deep into those today, but they should bear the yoke while they are young. And he means by that, like, let it teach you. (laughs) Let it teach you. What it might be like. He goes on to say they should sit in silence as those who are listening and learning and considering. They should put their mouth in the dust as those submitted to to saying, God, do whatever it would take to bring me to a place where I'm right with you. And that's really what's going on in this passage. This is is not about them just being punished for things they've done wrong, but but about God. Sort of what does it take? And it's a question we should all ask. What would it take for God to bring me to a place where I am willing to submit my life joyfully to him? I just want to propose, if you've never answered that question in your life, it's the most important question you could be asking today. What would it take for you? What would would have to happen in your life before you would stop having confidence in yourself? What would have to happen in your life before you believe that your own record was going to be good enough before God when you stand before Him? What would it take for God to really get you to begin to listen the most important question you could ask yourself today because God's purpose in that really is that we would experience mercy not to crush us but to cause us to do what the writer says here to open our ears and to submit and learn and be prepared for for a permanent sort of repentance and walking with him and until we are honestly able To consider our own sin and the holy justice of God for our complicity in a broken world will not be able to truly value the abundance of God's mercy that is offered to us. In a sense, our appreciation of God's justice is really meant to prepare us for a greater appreciation of His mercy. Even here in this lament, it's not the justice of God that takes center stage and is intended to be remembered. It's the mercy of God. But if we don't take this moment to really feel the weight and the seriousness of the matter, we run right into these verses that that we sang a song from and we read today and we go, man, I'm so happy God's faithfulness is great, His mercies are new every morning, but we never feel like we're the people who need mercy. I mean, how many days this week did you wake up with a keen sense of your need for the mercy of God? I'm just sort of deeply grateful that God is a merciful God who doesn't execute quickly his judgment over our sin. That brings us to the second way we see the abundance of God's mercy, is we see it by turning our attention to his daily offer. We see it by turning our attention to God's daily offer of mercy. In the most famous lines of Lamentations, and in many ways, maybe the only portion that many people can remember, we read these words about the consistency of God's 
offer of mercy. My guess is you might have known these words about God making his mercies new every morning, but been unsure. If we would have polled everybody on the way in, unsure where they were found in the Bible. And there's probably not another verse in the book of Lamentations that you have uh, any memory of and could quote or reference. Because we don't really love to read such negative, dark things when we think about our spiritual lives, right? But here in the middle of this is this incredible jewel about God's mercy. In verse 21, after cataloging the situation that his people are in, Jeremiah finds space for genuine hope. Now before we look at verse 21, let me just kind of geek out for a second. Lamentations is crazy. It's four chapters, okay? And in the four chapters, it's an acrostic. The whole thing is an acrostic. It's an acrostic poem. So he doesn't just write this, like, really amazing thing. He does it with art. He does a whole acrostic about what it was like to suffer under God's justice. And then here in the middle, uh, we get an actual uh, double-length acrostic that uh, has a center that we're kind of all in the center. And we're kind of walking through right now in the center of the book. If you were to sort of wind down all of these acrostics and in the middle, right here in the middle is this section about God's mercy. Now in Hebrew poetry, that means this is what matters. And so all the time, Hebrews would write in this sort of thing called a chiasm. And a chiasm, it sort of works from the outside of the outline into the most central things. And then it works its way back to the same ideas that it started with. And it sort of like traces its way in, it finds the center, and then it traces its way out. And right here at the center of the book of Lamentations is this beautiful, beautiful picture of God's mercy. Because, no, because even when the Bible talks about justice and judgment of God, what it really wants to talk about is God's mercy. What's super abundant is the sense that God is a merciful God. That was free. Um, Steadfast love of the Lord, he says in verse 22. He begins to get us into that. Here's what I turn my mind to, and I find hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now here in this, in verses 22 and 23, if we're going to really understand what he is saying about God's steadfast love, we've got to understand a little bit about Hebrew poetry. I've already told you one thing, but there's another thing kind of going on here. One of the techniques in Hebrew poetry is to use what is called a parallelism. Two lines back to back that are talking about the same thing, but just using different images or pictures to say them again so that it fills them out. So in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, line one. His mercies never come to an end. Same thing. Knowing about the steadfast love of God is knowing about the mercies of God. And and so he's he's sort of bringing us into the experience of, of this poetry, and he's doing that here. These first and second lines form a couplet that is what is called a synonymous parallelism. They mean generally the same thing and are said in two different ways. Now, let's think about the first side of that, the steadfast love of God. When he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that gets us started thinking about how the love of God is, in a sense, bigger than his justice. Because he's been talking about his justice, and he says, yet, even in all of this, God's love hasn't ceased. His steadfast love. In fact, this word steadfast love is two words in English that are meant to translate one word in Hebrew because we just can't quite get an idea of it, and it's the word hesed. That word hesed, it means like really faithful covenantal love. 
Like the kind of love that isn't broken by circumstances, but is devoted in a way that would say, before I break my promise to you, I would rather be the one that comes under the punishment. And this word steadfast love means that. He says the steadfast, the, the hesed of God never ceases. It never stops. So even while God is bringing judgment on Israel in punitive correction, his love is like a bubbling spring that doesn't dry up even in drought. There is no stopping its pressure breaking forth. And this is how we're to see God. Even in our most difficult moments, or if we were to come under some sense of his justice or correction, we're to see God this way. Bubbling out of him, though, at the very center is this love. I thought of this a couple years ago when I was doing repairs at a rental house I have in Stafford. We lived in this house for seven years, and then when we moved to Iceland, we started renting it out and just kind of kept that, kept that up. Now, I'm no handyman, uh, but uh, you know, we had some repairs to do, and I had this little leak in an overflow tank attached to the hot water heater. I can't even remember what it's called, but you know, hot water heaters, they've got this overflow tank in case the heat bubbles over, it goes into this little tank so it doesn't go all over your floor, right? Well, a few years ago, I actually didn't have one of those tanks, and it bubbled over and went all over the floor. So we got a tank. And we had that one for a while, and it got a hole in it, and it needed to be repaired. And, um, you know, so this, th so now I'm not a plumber, okay? Just to be clear, in case any of you were wondering. Uh, I'm a frugal cheapskate with too much confidence in my own ideas, okay? And so I thought, easy day, little pinhole, I'm going to Lowe's. I love to go to Lowe's and pretend I'm good at fixing things. So I go there and I find this stuff called Flex Seal. All right, maybe you guys, anybody, any Flex Seal users? Anybody ever use this? Now, because I grew up in the 80s, I was really attracted to this stuff. Uh, I grew up in the 80s and if it said, as seen on TV, you know, anything that made it onto TV was really good. And uh, now we got the internet and we find stuff all over the screen. But in the 80s, you learned about the really good stuff through as seen on TV infomercials. And this had the, the label right on it, Flex Seal, you know, for all your plumbing needs, and a little thing that said, as seen on TV. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, this is my stuff. They had the, this, like, putty kind of, like, rubberized stuff and some tape. I buy that, and I go back. I'm going to conquer this seemingly minor problem, save myself some money. And so I get out the stuff, and, you know, it's like a, a knife you use to put on it. And I go to the, the tank where the little hole is. I'm like, I'm just going to slide that over, and we're going to be done for the day. And so I do that. Some of you are already laughing. Some of you guys are plumbers. You know exactly what's going to happen. And so I cover it with this, you know, rubberized, like, glue kind of stuff. And I take some of the tape, and I just, like, put the tape over top of it. And I'm like, man, you know, I could have got paid $400 for this. Maybe I'll offer myself as a handyman. And I wait. Just kind of check it out, make sure everything's good. And, and a few seconds later, I notice that kind of the edge of the seal that I made, I know this is bubble happening, and before long, the bubble pops and the water drops out. I thought, oh my goodness. Well, I, I tried, listen, I'm going to tell you, I tried 20 more times. I came up with all sorts of ideas. I put it over top of that thing, and I held it on there, and I was like, set a timer. I'm going to wait 10 minutes. It's worth 10 minutes of my life. And I put it over that, and I'm waiting 10 minutes, and, and I'm just doing this. And after 20 tries, I finally realized that the can was pressurized. It had a pressure on it that I really hadn't taken into account. <laughs> and that no matter what I did, this stuff was never going to dry before the pressure moved through it and brought the water out. 
This, thing, this sealer that I was using was not going to hold back the constant pressure breaking forth from inside the tank. Now, in a sense, this is what Jeremiah is trying to convey about the love of God. It's pressurized, and it finds a way to break forth in every situation of our life. That it can't be buried over, even by the worst circumstance that is going on. Somewhere there in your life, in the darkest moment you're experiencing, the pressurized love of God is seeking you out and wants to break forth over your life. It never ceases. It won't stop. I bought a new can. I, I, took the, I got a new canister, and I called Mike Garlam, our church planner in Stafford, who's like a construction guy. I was like, how do I do this? And he told me how to do it, and we fixed it that way. Because you were never going to cover over that hole with the pressure coming out. Now listen, some of you need to hear this this morning, that God's love is like a pressurized force constantly coming to break forth in your life. That doesn't quite get all the way to the significance of it for us. That's why the second phrase of this couplet is really important. He goes on to say the same thing from a different vantage point. Some of you don't feel a deep sense of that love. Right now, you would say, I've never felt that kind of love from God. I've never had a deep awareness of that kind of love from God. Or you would say, you know, I can remember a time like that, but right now, personally, I don't. That's not my experience. You see, the reality is, he goes on to say the same thing from a different vantage point and says, what he really means in this situation, his mercies never come to an end. Now, mercies are a little different than steadfast love. Mercy means looking at our failure, our brokenness, our sin, and his, what does his steadfast love do? It chooses not to give us what we really deserve. You see, God comes to us in his steadfast love and offers you today that you wouldn't have to experience what your sin rightly deserves as a part of his justice. That, that, that you instead, that word mercy, you would receive mercy. A covering from God that would allow you not to experience what you rightly deserve from him as a result of your sin. Now, let's think about this personally. One of the things, and so why, why do you maybe struggle with this? Or maybe somebody that fits in this category. One of the things that cuts us off from believing that God's love is intended for us to be experienced personally is that we're often overcome with shame and guilt about past decisions we've made. We're, we're overloaded with this deep sense of shame and guilt about things that have happened in the past. Also, we can experience ongoing, even right now, ongoing shame and guilt from our current inability to gain control over, control over our weaknesses and not plunge into destructive and sinful habits. And because of that, we carry through life a deep sense of guilt and shame that the only way you're today going to hear about God's steadfast love is if you receive it as his mercy. That God actually wants to come from you. He doesn't need to look away from what you are, from who you are, from the mistakes you've made. He doesn't have to ignore them to love you. He can look straight at them and he can impart mercy 
Because God's mercy is an abundant well that, that, that wells up within him, that becomes new every morning. This is why he uses this terminology. Today, no matter what happened yesterday, if you had to reload and come to God for mercy, today God has a throne of mercy that you can come and be covered in, and you can know that God's purposes are good for you. His love abounds to you. He rejoices over you. You're forgiven and pardoned, and he knows it all and hasn't just looked to the, looked to the other side. He loves you. His mercy here is available to cover you. And there's enough for today, and there's enough for tomorrow, and every day the sun rises over your life, there will be a super abundance of enough mercy from God that you have access to come and just bathe in it and remember it, not because you finally fixed yourself, but because Jesus' promise over our life is good, and, and, and we receive this promise from God. So he says, quiet your heart, seek the Lord, learn to own your weaknesses in whatever present circumstance you need to, and look up and become convinced that even there the spring of God's mercy is breaking forth with a new supply for you today. One last thing he shows us. Last we see the abundance of God's mercy by trusting what is revealed about his heart. Now, it would be enough, we could stop right there with what we've seen this morning, but there's one other thing that I would be a bad pastor if I did not point out to you in this passage. Once we've heard clearly about God's daily, morning-by-morning mercy, Jeremiah encourages the listener to wait on the Lord, to bring forth his mercy in a way that turns our times of correction and experiences of trials or afflictions into a blessing. It's meant to help us trust while we wait for God's merciful heart to complete the redeeming and beautiful story that his mercy offers us in our own time and in his own way. It requires patience, honestly, and a seeking of the Lord to give us patience and endurance when things are negative and difficult to wait for God's story to be completed, his mercy to bring about what he's promised. And to me, the greatest gem in this passage comes as he gives us motivation to endure difficult seasons in a fallen world where God at times both allows what he calls afflictions here and correctively at times also brings afflictions as he did for the Israelite people. And that gem in this passage is found in verse 33, which is the central line of this poem of 66 verses here in this central section. And here is the truth at the center. Notice verse 33, because I'm going to help you as we look, think about different ways it's translated in English. It says... The Lord will not cast off forever, verse 31, 33, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. That's, that's what um, my, my translation has here. But in Hebrew, there's a word picture there. It says that he doesn't afflict from his heart. Like, you know, technically, like willingly afflict just doesn't make, doesn't hit me kind of the way uh, that God doesn't afflict from his heart does. And here's why. It's really important the way the heart is used in the prophets, he does not afflict from his heart. That's the gem. Like, think about that. What does that mean? Well, here in this context, the heart represents the most core reality at the center of what someone does, why he's doing something. It's something similar to saying as a parent to a child, you have to do this difficult thing I'm asking you, but I want you to see my heart because you have some good purpose for it. 
We use this kind of language when the experience of something has a complexity to it. When someone under our influence or care will have to endure some difficulty while waiting for the good thing that we are aiming for to break forth and resolve. We say, you know, trust my heart. My heart isn't for you to experience this pain. It's for you to, through that pain, to come out on the other side understanding my mercy and knowing my steadfast love. And I've got an end to it. And here is the insight that God gives us about God. He says this about God's character. We can wait on God for our future salvation and resolution of afflictions and difficulties because God does not afflict from the heart. God does not bring, actually, like, like even when he's in his justice and judgment, there's something else at the heart. There's something else deeper and more core to what God is and who he is and what he desires to do. Uh, and, and so here's the insight Jeremiah gives us about God. God has a deeper motivation of steadfast love and mercy in all of his works. Not just the ones that are easy for us to receive. But in everything that he does. Charles Spurgeon is often quoted as having said, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. When you cannot trace his hand, trust his heart. It's taken from this passage. Now, Spurgeon didn't actually say it that way. Um, I always try to research quotes, you know, and find out what was really said. He actually said something even more in line with this passage. Here's what he said. He said, the worldly person blesses God while he gives him plenty. But the Christian blesses him when he smites him. He believes him to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour, and believes it all is well. That's more powerful. So what would we see if we could see God's heart? Well, we don't really have to wonder about that. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ puts it on display for us. When it comes to God's justice and the judgment that we deserve, we see that God was willing to come and take on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. And instead of giving the worst of afflictions that belong to our sin, he took them on himself and paid for them. This is the core truth about who God is. What is he like? He comes and he takes our afflictions, takes our justice, the, the judgment that we deserved and Jesus Christ stepped in the world. The power of the Christian message is that God is so merciful that to satisfy his justice, he bore the divine penalty himself by paying the price of our sin at the cross. If you want to see the heart of God, look at Jesus there on the cross, receiving the harshest of judgment, and look and see the cost of your sin there on the cross being paid for and covered by him. That is the heart of God. He doesn't afflict from his heart. He bears our greatest afflictions and he offers mercy. And today that mercy is available to you if you will trust his purpose and his heart, if you will acknowledge your sin, if you will believe that God has sent his son to save and ransom you, there's an abundance of mercy available to you today and every morning. I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer as we prepare to celebrate some baptisms and stories of people who are trusting in God's mercy. I'm going to ask those who are being baptized in our worship team to join me on stage. But as they do, I want you for a moment just to bow your head. To quiet your heart.
and prepare, not just to celebrate baptisms, but to just respond in the way you need to this morning to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your love for us, and we pray that in this moment as we spend time celebrating these baptisms, as we remember your good promise of salvation, we ask that, God, you would help us to gain a deep appreciation for your mercy. Lord, that we would today, in a special way, God, celebrate your mercy as we've received it from you. Lord, that we would trust more deeply in your steadfast love. And as we think about the cross, Lord, it would just be a crystal clear picture of your heart. Lord, the heart that we trust in all of our experiences. Lord, to work out your good promises and your salvation over our lives. Lord, I pray for the person here today who's never put their faith and trust in you that this would be a day of salvation for them. They would hear these words and they would respond and in simple faith call on you. Lord, as we celebrate these baptisms, we would be reminded of your generous grace in every story and every circumstance. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, today's a special day. Uh, and often we spend time celebrating the end of our services, uh, the Lord's Supper, as a reminder of his ongoing salvation and grace through the cross in our lives. But today we get to celebrate uh, with a few people who have come to be baptized. And each of their stories uh, is, is really unique. And, and I want to I begin by just mentioning some things to us about what it is that we are witnessing today. The Bible says that... Uh, that salvation comes not through the work of our own hands or the things that we do or our own performance, but a gift of God's divine mercy and grace like we've been talking about this morning. And uh, one of the ways that we picture that is that through baptism as a symbol, it identifies us not with our own works and our own life, but what Christ has accomplished on the cross. So symbolically, what we do in baptism is we come and we say, you know, because of our sin, we confess that we were dead in our sins, but, but we have been buried with Christ. Christ's death on the cross counted for us. His death in the grave was our death, and we've been raised to walk in a new, new way of life with the promise of eternal hope and joy. And, and so there's a picture of our lives being united to his life, where he, his life has paid for our sin, and it has is, it is put forth our righteousness that makes us approved by God. We, we see this uh, really in Romans chapter 6, when it says, do you, know that, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We have become participants in his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's a symbol and picture of renewed spiritual life from God that every person needs. And uh, you're going to hear today the just simple stories uh, of those who have come to, to be baptized today to give profession that their hope is not in themselves, but in 